Those are the voices of others. Their voices are beyond words, our words. But if we listen carefully, what we hear is more than words can say about how we see, think, and feel about the other species, ape and non-ape, the others we share Earth with, and how our interpretations personally and culturally shape the way we treat other species, habitats, and value all life. According to my next guest, we need to step beyond ourselves and must ask, who are we here within this journey of existence? What is life like, not just for other people, but for all living beings living with us? What do they do and why and how? How do they experience life? And what matters to them? How do they experience meaning in their particular way? And how does life vary from individual to individual within a species? Those are all questions posed by my next guest, American ecologist and author Carl Safina. In his three most recent books, The View from Lazy Point, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, and most recently, Becoming Wild, How Animal Cultures Raise Families, Create Beauty, and Achieve Peace, he probes all of those questions. In addition to authoring over a dozen major literary works, Carl Safina's writings are regularly featured in the New York Times and Yale Environment 360. Carl is the recipient of a MacArthur, a Guggenheim, and a Pew Fellowship. He is the inaugural holder of the Endowed Chair for Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University, and he is the founder of the Safina Center, which widely explores how humans are changing the living world and what those changes mean for life-supporting systems. My conversation with Carl touched on a variety of issues that face us in relating not only to other great apes, like the chimps at Badungo Forest in Uganda, but other species, many of whom look nothing like us. We also took time to examine a concept Carl and over a dozen other ecologists espouse called Half-Earth. You're listening to Talking Apes, the podcast that gets to the heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Talking Apes is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and through our Patreon members program. If you'd like to support Talking Apes, you can do so by logging onto our website at www.talkingapesoneword.org. And check out all the options for how you can help ensure a future for the kind of conversations you hear here on Talking Apes. And now my guest, Carl Safina. Hi, Carl. Welcome to Talking Apes. One of the things that you do I think so brilliantly as a writer is that your choice of words in trying to get other people on this journey that you have been on over the last decade through these books, it's really the vocabulary that's important to get people to see who versus it or to see, you know, not just what is the meaning of life, but where is the meaning of life? Well, semantics, you know, I mean, word, word choices are crucial um i mean obviously you need you need to be asking some good questions of yourself uh, you need to be well in my opinion very careful about the words you choose and about what the sentences look like and feel like and sound like that's all part of the writing o oddly enough when I'm writing a lot, um, 
I spend a lot of time choosing words. And this hurts me when I'm just trying to talk to somebody <laughs> because I feel like I, I, I start speaking really slowly with a, with a lot of pauses trying to find the right words. And that's not really how people talk in, you know, in normal conversation. Um, so, um, it's a, in a way it's two different skills, writing and speaking. And I, and I make a living basically doing those two things. And, and sometimes the writing, um, as I say, you know, hinders the talking, but yes, I do think that there are two ways for me to show people what I'm trying to show them. One is for us to live together and and go through life together and experience all these things. And the other is for me to try very, very, very carefully to choose the words that are the best way of engaging somebody emotionally. You know, there's a lot of information. If you if you want to learn facts, there's you don't need me. Um, but what I try to do is is form an emotional connection. Um, I mean, I won't say a bond. That would be my my aspiration would be to have an emotional bond happen between my words and the reader. But that's really up to the reader and up to how well I manage it. Um, because I write a lot about conservation, a lot of the issues are distressing. And many times people tell me that I've made them, that when they read something I wrote, it made them cry. And I always feel like if I did that, then I did my job. Not because I want people to be sad, but because I want people to feel something from what I'm writing. Once in a while, somebody says, you made me laugh out loud. That's better. But um, a lot of the things that I write about are, uh, you know, they're, they're not amusing or humorous topics. M much more than half the time, I would say, they have to do with things that are a lot more in a way spiritual. Who, who are we with on this planet? Who are we on this planet? Most of us really understand nothing at all about life or any perspective of the, the time it has taken to get to where we are or the almost, I mean, almost completely unbelievable, except for the fact that it has happened, the almost unbelievable fact that there is life on this planet, how miraculous it is how intricate and wonderful it is. Almost nobody really has any sense of this, I would say. And as I go along spending, you know, essentially the main part of my working life, trying to understand and grasp and, and dig deeper into these things, um, the more it, the more it unfolds before me as something almost completely untouched. And, you know, I think if I was really getting it, I would feel like, oh yeah, well, I'm, I'm getting familiar with that aspect of things or, or, or I'm, I'm hitting a wall here where I'm not finding anything new. But um, in a way, the more into these topics I get in, in reading and, experiencing in life and in thinking about them and in trying to convey them, the 
the more vast they seem, almost at an accelerating rate. And I guess that's kind of because, you know, your vision is like from your eyes outward, like a big, you know, like a big V. And the farther out on that V you get, the 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 broader the horizon is and the and the more you realize that the distance is essentially untouchable i guess a good analogy would be the way people first looked at the stars versus our sense of the universe now it just it just expands at an accelerating rate um i guess that was a bit of a long answer to your question no 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 because it actually it 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 triggers a couple of other questions that I had for you. And, and one was one, when I read through the, the work that you've done, the books and, and other writings, I, I get this strong sense of you trying to convey those things, these things that you're discovering and the things that you're, the questions you're asking and trying to share what you're finding and, and possible answers to those and I'm wondering if, and, and I'm trying to reconcile that against the way the public doesn't understand um, the world around us, doesn't understand. And I hesitate to use the word nature because it sounds like it's another thing. Um, and, and which you've we, written. We could, say, we could say anything. I, we don't understand anything, I think, is a, is a good starting Point, and then you can qualify that. But I mean, one of the things that has struck me recently in talking to some friends of mine who are teachers and just talking to some uh, young adults, people who are in their 20s, um, what do you learn in high school? Or what do you learn? In, what do you learn before you get a high school diploma? Do you learn where your food comes from, where your water comes from? where your waste goes, where the material basis for any of the things that you have and use has originated, how it got to you, how it was transformed into the forms that you see it. Do you know anything about other animals? I, I mean, I have, a, I have a friend who's a biology teacher who tells me he, he asks his students in high school name 10 species. And after dog, cat, and cow, a lot of them can't go farther than that. Um, so what do we learn by the time we're out of high school? We learn how to buy things. That's, that's what it really seems to boil down to, to me. We, we're equipped to just be consumers, not human beings, we don't really we don't really learn ethics. We don't learn how to um, how to take care of each other, how to take care of the world. We don't learn any kind of perspective that would give us a little wisdom, let, let alone maybe some of the humility that you would see in in indigenous cultures who revere the world instead of look for different ways to um you know, create, you know, basically what do, what do we do in the way that we all live, uh, including me, we use stuff up and we use things that we, we don't understand the consequences. We don't understand their origins. We don't really know anything. 
And, and, you know, after, after trying to think about these things for my entire working life, what I'm concluding is that we don't really know anything and, and that, you know, the best of us are not too different in that regard from just the average. I, I live in a regular house like regular people. I, I drive a car. Uh, you know, so what? It's a hybrid. Big deal. Um, it still has a ton of metal. It's, I still have to go to the gas station even, even after, you know, I, I, it's a plug-in hybrid. So part of it runs off a battery. Where does that energy come from? It comes from a power plant that burns coal. I mean, I, I'm, for all of my desire to not do harm in the world in my life, I'm about the same as everybody. And that's a distressing thought that really, I'm, I'm, as I say, the more I think into these things and try to work them out with, with my mind and with words, the more I, the more I realize these distressing, uh, these distressing aspects. I mean, I, I guess I was feeling that in a piece that you wrote uh, about a year ago in uh, E360, the Yale publication, um, and, and that was actually something I was going to hopefully end this whole conversation with, but let's just jump there. I mean, it's the protecting half the planet concept yes. um, that mm -hmm. you and some others, uh, you know, have published papers on. And I have to say, let me, let me just say with, with a smile here, I thought of that decades before Ed Wilson thought of it. I was in college <laughs> when I thought of it, but you know what, if you have a, if you have a thought and you don't write about it, it, that thought doesn't matter because it doesn't, it doesn't gather any power. So, um, yes, anyway, so this concept of trying to protect half the planet in a, in a functionally natural, um, you know, way that, that it can have the, the kinds of functions that support life. It, it has species populations that are viable and doing well, those kinds of things. What, what it is not, it is not a concept of, having no people in half the planet. I guess that goes back to the semantics I'm talking about. It's the minute you use the word half, somebody's thinking, okay, we're going to take a razor. We're going to slice the planet in half. And this is the half over here nature gets. And this is the half that humans get. Well, that's part of the problem with the, the, the almost total breakdown of how we learn to talk to one another. Uh, you know, the, here's the way it should go. I, I say, I think we need to protect half the planet. And the, the response should be, what do you mean by that? Rather than, oh, no, you can't do that. You, you're a misanthrope. Oh, you're going you're gonna to throw people out of their homes. And, you know, all, all this disunderstanding, the immediate knee jerk, which I think really has been accelerated by social media, where everybody is a critic. Everybody just says no. They find their echo chambers and then it becomes a big hostile problem, you know, where this idea that that in order to basically save the world and save life on Earth as we know it and save something about our way of living as we know it, we we can't ruin the whole planet. So uh, protecting the natural functions in half the planet is the goal you know that should be an intelligent and and heartfelt um and emotional conversation 
about loving the world, loving the planet and maintaining life. And, it, and instead, it's become very divisive because a lot of people who refuse to understand or even ask what that means immediately um, began to oppose it. And, um, you know, and I wrote, I wrote about the nature, a little bit of the nature of that opposition, what, what it is they're objecting to in that piece in Yale E360. And, and the things that people object to are not part of what people mean when they say that we should be trying to protect half the planet. They're objecting to something that is not the proposal. I mean, that kind of it throws me back to this trilogy of these books. That's part of it is, is asking questions from another perspective is what we just continually don't do as you did in, in those books. And I think that's the value of, of somebody reading them. Um, and especially, I think, in that order, because you seem to we go from landing the spaceship and taking a walk around the place. Well, to take that spaceship analogy to to apply it to what you just said, you know, I, I think it's it's very important to get outside yourself and have a look around. And it's 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 easy to do that. You know, you just say, well, what's it like from their perspective? Try to imagine it rather than not trying to imagine it. And I guess I guess maybe metaphorically or or the analogy that um, perhaps was planted in my mind early was the idea of some some astronaut looking looking at Earth from off of Earth and getting a very different impression of it. If we try to look at life from the perspective of some other person who is a little a little bit not like us in in their circumstances or their experience or other species who are also trying to stay alive and need certain things it's informative it's it's not that hard to try to do it you know i mean it's not that you will necessarily come up with all the right answers but it's not a big stretch to just say you know, get outside yourself a little bit and look back at your circumstances, look at others and try to look at the world from their point of view and see what it feels like. But isn't it therein lies the problem? And that's what you were saying earlier. It's like, what what do we learn by the time we graduate from high school? We learn how to consume. So there there isn't even a, I mean, a, a big difference if, I, I mean, I've lived with you know, groups of people uh, in, let's call them indigenous people from whether it's in the Congo or other places, Papua New Guinea, and they grow up in a vastly different setting. So they're yes, vast, vastly different. Yes. So their perspective is, is already different from the time, you know, from birth. Many indigenous cultures, the folk and, and not only indigenous cultures, but many non-Western cultures, non-Western philosophies, and, and other religious traditions. The focus is on relationships. Our focus is on what can we get and on the idea that we win by making others lose, rather than that we win by taking care of each other. The many other cultures, it's the latter. They're taught life is about relationships 
and that the whole community wins by taking care of each other. And those are the ethics. And we lack those things in our culture. And I, I would say that our culture has globalized not because it's better, but because it's just a lot more violent. And it, it's willing to roll anything and anybody to get bigger. I'm going to take a short pause in my conversation with Carl Safina. We'll be back in just a minute. But first, I wanted to check in with assistant producer Demelza Bond. Hey, Demelza, how are you? Hiya, I'm good, thanks. Um, I've just got some listener comments to read out today. So recently we released an episode with Rachel Hogan from Ape Action Africa. Please go and check out that episode after this one if you haven't. It's amazing. Um, We had Cassandra who wrote in. She said she was in awe and feeling so inspired listening to the podcast with Rachel Hogan and about the work of Ape Action Africa. It was so amazing listening to her experience and I've learned how delicate but powerful apes are and that we must do everything we can to protect them. Uh, Thank you so much for those lovely comments, Cassandra. So we have an announcement to make this week as well. Um, As you know, this podcast is made possible by generous donations from our listeners um, and we are part of the non-profit Globio and we're now members of Patreon. So if you go over to our website, talkingapes.org and have a look in the top corner where it says become a patron, you can now become a member by subscription um, and you can get rewards and access to bonus materials. So please consider supporting us that way. We do have our first Patreon subscriber and I want to say a big thank you to her. That is Cindy Marlowe. Um, She says she's very proud to be our first subscriber and she hopes she's the first of many. We hope so too. But no, seriously, thank you very much, Cindy. Um, We really appreciate your support. So if you want to support us, you can head to talkingapes.org. Don't forget, you can also reach out to us on our social media channels. All the links are on our website. Thanks for that, Demelza. And and by the way, just remember, Patreon is a really great way to get involved in the community around Talking Apes, and you can do it for as little as three dollars a month. It's uh, it's a wonderful way to support us, and and believe me, three dollars a month goes a long way to making these uh, podcasts possible and all of the stuff that has to go on behind the scenes um, to bring these amazing, amazing guests like Carl Safina to you on Talking Apes. Now, speaking of Carl Safina, why don't we get back to that conversation? Thanks, Demelza. Talk to you soon. Cheers. You spent some time in Badongo looking at chimps and, you know, the last third of of, uh, Becoming Wild is, is dedicated to that experience. And, you know, one of the one of the things that you talk about in there is, you know, we're not a great ape. We're 98 percent chimp. You know, it's chimpanzees that we're related to much more than gorillas or orangutans or bonobos. Um, That point has to do with our social behavior relative to the other apes, because we are actually, um, as far as I understand it, we are equally related genetically to chimpanzees and bonobos. And then a little farther from the different gorillas, there are two or three species of gorillas and orangutans recognized now. But among apes, it's not that, you know, some of our worst behavior is ape-like because none of those other apes will kill somebody they've known for 20 years except chimpanzees. 
chimpanzees are violent within their own societies, we're in their own communities, they have a constant issue with violence and with achieving status through violent contests. And they, they and human beings are the only ones who do that. So it's not like, it's not like our, you know, we shouldn't be like apes. We should, we should be more, more like most of the apes and less like chimpanzees. As somebody I know who's a animal behaviorist said, can you imagine if chimpanzees had automatic weapons? Well, that's us. <laughs> yeah. Some, somebody uh, used this, a similar analogy to me in the Congo. They said, do you imagine if they had, had chainsaws? Um, <laughs> so most of the Congo would be <laughs> clear cut by now. Well, I, I mean, I would just say, you know, is, do you really want to be that way? We have, we do have a choice and we can, we can teach each other to be however we want to be, because we are very, very flexible about how, how we are and what we teach and what we learn. Chimpanzees are a little bit stuck being chimpanzees. We're not really stuck being violent people who win by making others lose. A lot of other cultures do not do that and they do not teach that, but ours does. We have, we do have a choice. We do have that choice and, but we are choosing another route. How do we shift course in all of that? I mean, it, you talk about that to some degree in, on, a, on a grander scale in that article in Yale E360 about we have to make these decisions about humanely reducing population, about looking at the way we use resources. But the, again, those are choices. And it seems like a lot of, of what we're talking about boils down to choices, but we're not making those choices. So where, from your perspective in all the things that you've looked at, like where is that turning point that we begin to make the right choices? Well, it would be so much worse if we didn't have the solutions, but we, we have the solutions for essentially all the problems. We're, we're just not implementing those solutions. I grew up at a time where I, I remember the first Earth Day. There was a huge, huge turning point that was happening um, where really People were getting it on a, on a large scale. Millions of people went to Earth Day events uh, on the first Earth Day. The gigantic public groundswell of um, support and desire for protecting endangered species, cleaning up the air, cleaning up the water, um, doing something about toxic chemicals. All of those things resulted in different pieces of federal legislation. And then the pushback started and the pushback was extremely and is extremely well funded by the people who make the most money by hurting the wider interests instead of by trying to take care of everybody and everything. And so after that first decade or so of that turning point, that was um, the backlash against that, which has lasted for the last 40 years, has been largely successful. And the other thing is the abject failure of education. People in schools, in public schools, they do not learn about 
ecology. They don't learn about pollution or the history of the environmental movement or anything about our relationships with the world or each other. I have had young people on several occasions say to me, why do we need a clean water law? Why do we need a clean air law? The air is fine. Well, they don't remember when your lungs would hurt if you went to Los Angeles. They don't, they don't remember where the air over New York City was a smoggy haze. They don't remember when the newspapers had multiple stories of rivers catching fire because there was so much oil and stuff floating on them. They should be taught those things. And, and because we're not taught those things, people don't care. And we have this, you know, four decades of backlash that has largely succeeded. And now we have a lot of people who are, who are literally the government who um, obviously have no idea about any of this stuff um, and represent some of the meanest, basest kinds of um, ways of being in the world. Makes total sense to me. And when I, I read the, like the piece uh, that we've been referring to, it's protecting half this planet. It feels like there are a hell of a lot of switches that have to be flipped if we're good to get to that point. And I'm like, how do we, how do we flip that many switches? I, I think the problem is that we would have to agree on what to teach each other. And we, and we don't agree on much of anything. We, we are more polarized now than ever in my lifetime. It's, so that's not going in the right direction. And we have countries who do agree. They, they make these pledges at the climate talks, at the biodiversity conference, and then they take their pledges home and they don't get implemented. At least there are enough people around who make those pledges. They understand that there are these issues. It's not, it's not that no one understands and it's not that there are no solutions they pledge to the solutions but it's that we don't it's that we're too divided and you know when a thing is divided it doesn't last forever so then you get to the other way to reach the solution which is uh, absolute crisis and things really falling apart um, what would that look like? Well, it would look like flooding all of the big coastal cities of the world, uh, accompanied by fires that are burning vast, vast areas and storms that are coming stronger and faster. So all of those things are starting to happen, unfortunately, because if we acted on what we knew 50 years ago, they probably would not be happening right now. Or at the very least, they'd be happening a lot slower and we would have more options to adjust what we're doing. The other thing is that conflicts will be more likely to be, um, you know, be occurred. There'll just be more, more war and more violence. And people will, if, if, what's been happening is any indication people will not look to the environmental roots of a lot of that violence because the environmental stuff tends to 
increase the tensions and then what erupts are the old chimpanzee issues that you know people across a border in another community are the people that we hate but for a long time people could just stay in their own borders and be okay the reason the reason they're not okay is partly because it's getting too hot too dry there people need and want more resources and so they they look to their traditional enemies and um and then what happens is that the chances of conflict increase so a lot of this stuff i think you know as far as getting outside yourself and looking at it i think that if you if you get outside you try to look at the big picture and you collapse the timeline they become a little bit clearer if you just read the the news headlines every day um it just seems like a lot of different things are happening and they're all happening slowly i think in reality um the same things are creating different outcomes and they're happening at an accelerating rate that's that's what i see a lot of this seems to come back to the you know the the great taboo that nobody wants to talk about especially conservation organizations and that's population um you know there's that seems to be a just in i mean we're we're only separated by a, a few months in age and in our lifetimes when we were born there were you know a couple billion people on this planet and now you know there's three times that many um you know we just, what we just tipped the scales um we're recording this in you know january of 2023 and i think it was only a couple of weeks ago that they said we crossed the 8 billion mark at, with no signs of it's slowing but no signs of real shift in that trend and while we're sitting here talking this morning on the phone with uh, my my film agent in California, and they are in Santa Cruz, and they're underwater, they're literally underwater. Yeah, that's pretty incredible, and that's you know that's an unprecedented thing. I I read something this morning that some enormous fraction of California, like eighty or ninety percent, was under a flood watch. Watch, how is that even possible? Um, I mean, even if it was 20%, how would that even be possible? One year they burn to the ground and the next year they they wash away. I mean, this is not anything like what is supposed to be normal. And yeah, in our lifetimes, the world population has tripled. Every problem we have is either created by or exacerbated by the fact that there are just way too many people we are too much of a good thing and there would be various ways to justly humanely and fairly and easily um incentivize the what what is really the 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 main secret of rich people which is smaller families give you bigger lives but um the main uh, probably the main catastrophe of of all of these discussions is that the main catastrophe of um really the 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 basis of all of these discussions is the idea that talking about overpopulation is is somehow a bad thing to do or taboo or is against some group of people 
That, that is not at all the way the conversation ran for the first few decades where people were recognizing that this is the most fundamental issue. And uh, it took a really bad turn about 30 years ago and it got stuck there with no real reason for it to get stuck there. Maybe you could just articulate that turn 30 plus years ago. Well, at one of the UN conferences, the question in around 1990 or 91, the question of population was uh, a, a major issue that was to be discussed. And a bunch of um, people from the what we call what we used to call the developing world. Now we call it the global south um, decided that people talking about overpopulation were racist and were attempting to um, limit the population in the South as a way of, I guess, simply not having as many people from those continents and, and subcontinents. Um, but that was, that was never Never any part of the objective of the people who originated the warnings about overpopulation, um, most of whom, I should add, have small families. Yeah. No, it's it's become a, a very divided issue over the course of my career and working for some of the bigger environmental conservation NGOs. It's It was always a donor issue for a lot of them. <laughs> well... I worked for one of the big conservation groups all through the 80s and 90s. And in the 80s, they had a population program that had a couple of staff people and they were they were pursuing various kinds of population policies, all, all of which were sensible, none of which were racist, all, all of which strove to be compassionate and um, all of those things. It's not that hard, actually. Um, and then that just became, as we've been talking about, it became this taboo. But I should say also that the absolutely poorest people I've ever seen live in a place where most women have about eight or 10 children. And, you know, on the one hand, you could say they can't take care of those children very well. And then it starts, you know, people will say, oh, how can you say such a nasty thing about them? Well, if you look at it from the children's point of view, they're basically starving all the time. They have, they have no money to go to school. They have no opportunities in life. They have no options. In this place I'm talking about, a lot of them can't even grow crops or have farm animals because other people raid and steal them because everyone is starving in all of the surrounding communities. So that's just a <laughs> my dogs are erupting because my wife is coming. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to let them out for a second. And I'll come back. That's that's cool. 
And now we're getting the perspective from yet another creature on the planet. Makes me laugh because I know you've written and spoken about your dogs right. quite often in, in lectures and other things. So I have a vision of them. Um, that's that's they were all lying. They were all lying here, very very nicely listening to us. And it's a little bit of a weird thing that I I. I have a feeling, I'm not sure this is true, but I have a feeling that when I'm on these kinds of calls, these Zoom type things, you know, these computer, that they kind of know that this is a quiet time. But, it, you know, if something happens like someone comes up the driveway or something like that, they will they will do their normal dog thing. Dogs erupted. And if for any of you who um, read Lazy Point, um, or you read um, any of the other books that he's, he's done, and even the children's books that he's worked on, you'll the dogs play a significant role. He's he's thought a lot about viewing the world through their eyes and their wants and their needs. While we give it a moment for Carl, I guess that would have been the same as if we had recorded this live and gone for a walk on the beach just outside his home. The dogs would have been with us the whole time and probably barking and fetching sticks and playing in the water and having a great time. So we'd be dealing with those, all those interruptions to our conversations, but we'll give it another I'm shot. I'm sorry about that, but let's, um, let's try that again. That's quite all right. What I was saying was that, you know, these, these horrendous situations of really abject poverty with no chance of anybody having any opportunity is the end game of not having any restraint on population. It's it's good for nobody and nothing. And that's why all of the people in the world who are able to have any control of their lives control their, their births, the spacing of their births and their family size. We all do that. And and yet some people have said that this is in some way um, anti uh, anti whatever whatever group anti southern um, uh, or, or or racist or anti some culture to just try to um, basically share what we all do so that we have lives that are under our control that we can have opportunities for our children, et cetera. We've only got a couple of minutes here so we can make sure we let you go. And where does, where is this path leading you personally? I mean, as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, I, I look at those three books, almost like a trilogy, the way they, they walk us um, through looking at other species, looking at it from trying to look at it from their perspective, their needs, their connections to one another, what it means to be an individual in all of that. And so where, where, if there's a fourth book and I, I'm sure there is because as prolific as you are, um, wh where does it take us? Well, f first of all, I guess my, my, my ego compels me to mention that the view from lazy point was my fourth book. So um, we're up to, I think, eight now. And from, you know, if you, if you're thinking that the view from lazy point beyond words and becoming wild form a trilogy, there is a fourth one in what you might see as that 
series. And the fourth one is coming out this, well, this coming October. Now it's it's still nine months away. Um, And it is about a little orphan screech owl that we raised and how people around the world in different cultures at different times have seen the human place in nature and how how very different almost every other culture has been from ours, from from the Western view of the human place in the world. Um, As far as my own personal journey, I think it was E.B. White who said he wakes up every day um, trying to decide whether to save or to savor the world. And that's a balance I'm always trying to strike um, you know, there's there's a lot that I want to do. There's a lot that I want to share. And there's also a lot that I just want to enjoy because for all of these dreadful problems that we have, there is still a very vibrant and vital world out there trying its best to maintain itself and stay alive as it always has. And in fact, we do see some things that are really important that have gotten a lot better. Uh, especially in the region where I live with some of the wildlife that we thought um, might never come back because it was in very bad shape when I was a teenager. Some, you know, birds like bald eagles, peregrine falcons, ospreys, whales. People thought that a lot of whales might um, actually be wiped out. And in fact, most of the whales in our region are recovering. We see whales a lot more than I ever saw them when I was young. Um, we still have one, the right whale, which is in very, very poor shape, but um, some of the other ones are doing a lot better. So those kinds of things. And it's it's important to stay in touch with that. It's important to go outside, go birding, take the dogs to the beach and stay in touch with all of that really wondrous vitality. It, yeah, it reminds me of Edward Abbey's, uh, and I'll totally misquote it, so I won't even try, but he, his uh, something about you bastards get up from behind your computers and your desks uh, and quit talking about saving the world and go out and enjoy it once in a while. Um, and it, it really is that kind of attitude. It, it reminds me a little bit, you at the end of a, I, I watched um, a, a talk that you did uh, to, um, I think it was in Detroit to, um, a collection of zoo folks that were looking at ethics. Um, I don't know, this was a couple of years ago and at, towards the end, end of it, I, it made me smile because a woman asked the question, you know, well, what can I do? And you had a slide prepared, um, that you popped on the screen, uh, it was, which was exactly that. It was, what can I do? Which is what you must get asked a lot. Um, but what I thought was interesting is, is you had, you know, you had the wrong question and then you had a better, a, a better question on, I'm looking at it right now so I could get it right. Um, do you remember? Well, you, of course you, you would know that, but I, I thought it was interesting what you said, you know, it's, there's, what can I do? Versus what can I do? Where the emphasis on that? And maybe we, you could just explain that a little bit. We'll leave it at okay. that. Okay. Well, at it the seems to this. me that when people say, what can I do? They, they often say, I'm only one person. And I, I point out that everyone in history has been only one person. And you shouldn't think of yourself as so powerless or disempowered. 
if you ask what can I do and put the emphasis on do, you you are you're already better prepared mentally to actually engage in a way that will bring you a little bit of satisfaction and the idea that you are you are doing something you're doing what you can do and we can all do different things not it's not everybody can do this or everybody should do that there's a whole suite of different things and people should do what they're best positioned to do there literally there are people who the best thing they can do is change their major and other people who the best thing they can do is give a billion dollars away to a, a cause that is crucial hmm. On that note, we'll let you go. I can hear the dogs rustling around. <laughs> They're eager to probably go for a walk on the beach. So yes, they Carl, always are. Thanks, thanks for taking the time. I know this was a bit scattered, and hopefully, we can do it again when the other book comes out. Um, I assume it's a, a story about an eastern screech owl, uh, not a western. Yes, that's screech exactly owl. right. It's a story about an eastern screech owl, um, and uh, and a lot of other things are in there. So. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's scattered and there's wide ranging. I think we had a wide ranging conversation and I look forward, Jerry, to our next one. That would be great. Thank you again very much. Thank, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. I want to thank Carl Safina for taking the time to chat with me from his home in Stony Brook, New York. You can find links to Carl's books and other writings exploring our relationship with the living world on our website at talkingapes.org. You've been listening to Talking Apes, the podcast that gets to the heart of what's happening with and to apes like us. Our conversations are with folks from across this planet of apes, writers, researchers, conservationists, and scientists, all of them getting us closer to understanding who we are and why. Because ensuring the survival of the other four great apes is the only way to ensure our own. I would like to thank our Talking Apes team, assistant producer Demel Zaban, and lead researcher Megan Lewandowski for all the behind-the-scenes work they do in making this podcast possible. And I would like to thank you, the donors and Patreon members who make Talking Apes successful through your generous support and sharing of this podcast. If you appreciate what you hear on Talking Apes, consider supporting us. Log on to our website at www.talkingapes.org, where you'll find links to everything you can do to share and support this podcast. Finally, I would like to thank all of those on the front lines of Great Ape Survival. We hope through Talking Apes we're able to shine a light on the incredibly selfless work you do every single day to ensure great apes, primates, and their forest homes survive and thrive deep into the future. I'm Jerry Ellis. For everyone connected to Talking Apes, thanks for listening. <laughs>